If you want to get a sense for how people feel about this year's presidential election, one thing you could do is spend an hour in a 7-Eleven near Times Square staking out the pour-your-own coffee station. The company has been running its own totally unscientific poll since Bush v. Gore in 2000. Customers can pick a blue Democrat cup or a red Republican cup, and 7-Eleven keeps a running tally of all the coffee cups until the election. So far, the poll has predicted the winner every time. But this year, there's a third option, the Purple Cup. All right, will you um, tell me what your name is and what you're doing here? Oh, sure. Uh, Deidre Miles from the Bronx. And uh, you came for a coffee break? Yeah, I did. I actually only saw three people out of dozens opt into the coffee cup poll at all. And Deidre Miles from the Bronx was one of them. She didn't take a red cup or a blue cup. She took a purple cup. Yeah, I don't want everybody to know, but... Not to say, you know, it means anything, but I'd rather just be showing that, you know, that it's important this year to make sure that we go out and vote. I do have a party, but I don't need to speak out as to, you know, which party that is. Just know that I'm not voting for Trump. (laughs) 7-Eleven calls the Purple Cup the Speak Up Cup. In my head, I have been calling it the No Thank You Cup, and it is crushing it in the polls this year. It's at 40% nationwide better than either of the party cups. And that's pretty sad. I mean, it's not like 40% of 7-Eleven coffee drinkers are actually undecided, or like they aren't gonna vote for Clinton or for Trump. It's that given the choice, they would rather not have to make a decision at all. This is No One Knows Anything, the politics podcast from BuzzFeed News. I'm Meg Kramer. This episode is about undecided, uncommitted, and unenthusiastic voters in the 2016 election. That's the 4 to 14 percent of the electorate who still don't know who they're voting for, depending on which poll you look at. Plus the people who have made up their minds, but feel kind of queasy when they think about it too hard. We're partnering up this week with our friends over at the Decode DC podcast. You'll hear from that show's host, Jimmy Williams, later in the episode. You'll also hear from Samara Klar, a researcher who studies a growing group, independent voters. We'll talk about why so many people identify as independents and what the consequences are for grassroots campaigning. And you'll hear from Mitch Stewart. He was director of Battleground States for President Obama's 2012 campaign about why undecided voters are so valuable and what campaigns do to woo them. But first, I'm joined by Hayes Brown. He's a world news editor at BuzzFeed. Hey, Hayes. Hi, Meg. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for joining me. I uh, This is the first time I've seen you without your hat on. Oh, wow. Has it become that much of my brand? That's impressive. Which you took off for acoustic reasons. So thank you. <laughs> I live to serve. <laughs> so um, how many undecided voters are there? Uh, there are several, from what I understand, <laughs> uh, up to dozens throughout the country, uh, according to the latest research is what I'm hearing. Do we know like what percentage of voters are undecided this year? I believe I heard something along the lines of between 4 and 14 percent, which seems insane that it's above possibly the margin of error in these surveys. Yeah. How is it that people have still not made it? Like, are you waiting for more information? I don't know. I mean, it's not like it's a choice really between like... Do you like crunchy or smooth peanut butter more where it's basically the same, just a little texture, a little texture in your mouth? But no, uh, this is actually a pretty big choice. And the fact that people haven't quite decided what they're going to do with their lives here is pretty astonishing to me. Yeah, it's not a matter of degrees. Exactly. So voting is already happening. Yep. Early ballots uh, are starting to roll in throughout the country. 
if you are still undecided, the next five weeks is decision time. Game time, as they say in politics. I, I'm pretty sure that's exactly the technical term, game time. Game time? Yes. No. Game on, game time. I've watched The West Wing, so <laughs> I am clearly a political expert. Why do you think we're so interested in this group of people who small group of people who haven't made up their minds yet. I think it's a couple of reasons. I mean, what, the most compelling reason I can think of is because for campaigns, there's people that they can still just grab at. People who are, it's like a jump ball in basketball where it's up there. The undecideds are hanging in the air in the campaign's minds and just the slightest fingertip will get the ball over to their team uh, to use a very extended sports metaphor. Uh, as for journalists, it's because... Uh, you get tired of talking to people who are very pro either side throughout the course of the campaign. You want to talk to people who are still listening to the issues, are still trying to make up their minds, even if in the back of your head you're thinking to yourself, why? Yeah, I think there's also this, I mean, I think about this too, and I think there's also something about undecided voters where like, we think of them as pure because mm. they're nonpartisan, they are weighing all of the issues, they're trying to make an informed decision. Like, that's the, that's, you know, voter participation at its best. And I think that we want to believe that that is still possible. I agree. They are the pure, precious cinnamon rolls of politics. They have been untainted by big money and things of that nature. Uh, they, they just, they're here for the issues and just the facts, ma'am. And that's how we have them in our heads, even if that's not particularly the case. We're going to hear from a few undecided voters later in the episode. But first, let's take a look at a much bigger group that many undecided voters are part of, independents. According to Gallup, 40% of voters identify as independent. That number has been growing, and now it's bigger than the percentage of people who identify as Republicans or Democrats. We wanted to know why so many people opt out of the party system and what impact that has on elections. So you and I talked to someone about this. Yes, we did. Her name is Samara Klar. She's an assistant professor of political science at the University of Arizona. And she studies voter identities and how they affect voter behavior. Hello. Hey, Samara. Hey, how you doing? Good. How are you? Good, thanks. The first thing you should know about independence is that, like most people, their voting patterns are very predictable. 95% of independents pick the same party every time. Americans are very loyal to their party identification. In fact, one of the best predictors of who you vote for is who your parents have voted for. Party identification is hereditary, um, if not if not necessarily genetic, but it is clearly there's a high correlation between parents and children. People stick with the same party their whole lives, and they're very, very reluctant to ever vote for another party. I guess I, like, personally kind of resent this idea that like my own voting pattern is so predictable that <laughs> you would know what it was just by asking my mom who she voted for, which is true. I, I vote for the same people that my parents vote for. You know, when I tell my students that, my, my undergraduate students, they're so depressed. Like they're all, we're all just going to turn into our parents. And But it's true. And, you know, obviously there's exceptions. The Alex P. Keaton colliery. Exactly. Thank you. I always use that, but I feel like I'm too old for my students and they like look at me like I'm crazy. But yes, the Alex P. Keaton phenomenon. I often like put a picture of him up on PowerPoint and everyone's like, I don't know what that is. I don't know what that is. Can somebody oh explain God, it to me? <laughs> okay, so Michael J. Fox plays Thanks. a young Republican whose parents are hippies like, totally in the hippie. 80s and it was amazing. It's, I actually, I'm sitting in my office right now on campus and I have a signed photo of Michael J. Fox on my wall that my husband got for me for my birthday because I'm such a big fan. Uh, <laughs> 
I'm Canadian, so we have that going in, in common also. Anyway, the point is that, yes, it is kind of disturbing. You think you're, like, so independent and you have your own, you're coming to your political decisions on your own through your own experiences. And the fact is party identification is a very, very uh, persistent trait throughout one's lifetime. The vast majority of independents always vote for the same party. They'll tell you that they choose a candidate, they don't choose a party, but nonetheless, they always vote for the Democrats or they always vote for the Republicans. So the question that we were interested in answering is why are these people identifying as independent in the first place? And we take a look at a particular psychological trait. It's called self-monitoring. Self-monitoring, if you're unaware, as I was before this interview took place, is the idea that people pay very close attention to how others view them. In this case, when it comes to politics, people don't really want to be seen as being hyper-partisan. They don't want to be seen as being just a party loyalist. And so they'll say to their friends that they're independent. In American politics today, there is a social stigma against partisanship. When you turn on the news, when you read about politics, you're reading about aggression, fighting, a lot of negativity, a lot of personal attacks. And Americans don't really want to be associated with that. So if you care what people think about you, you're much more likely to just tell them that you're independent. This year is an especially sad one for partisan politics, as we know. (laughs) Many tears have been shed. So many tears. There was a Pew poll that came out last month that found that among their own supporters, people who say that they're going to vote for Donald Trump, just 28 percent said that they would be excited to see him in office. The numbers were lower for Hillary Clinton. Just 25% of her supporters would be excited to see her in office. Supporters on the DL. But let's look at this from the campaign's perspective for a minute here. Because if only 25% of your supporters are excited, at least the other 75% are going to vote for you. So if independents are basically like unenthusiastic partisans who vote the same way every time, why bother? Because independents are ashamed to publicly identify their partisan preference, they're less likely to put a yard sign on their lawn. They're less likely to wear a sticker. They're less likely to tell their colleagues at work why they're preferring their preferred candidate. And all of these things can affect turnout. So if, if people are remain ashamed of their party, they can depress voter turnout, which is a really big problem for the parties. Okay, so even though independents are predictable voters, it's everything that they do or don't do up until they vote that matters too. So I asked Samara what parties can do to make independent voters feel more comfortable about openly declaring their partisan preference. Now, the initial response that someone might have would be to to get, tell politicians to compromise a little more, to act a little more bipartisan. But actually what we find is that independents don't necessarily want compromise any more than partisans do. Now, if you simply ask independents, what do you want, they will tell you, I want compromise. We did this with a national survey. We asked a large nationally representative sample of Americans, if you had a message for President Obama, what would that message be? For independents, the message was compromise, work across the aisle. So, you know, you might think they want compromise. However, we followed up with an experiment where we actually tested how individuals react when they're told that their representative compromised in Washington. Independents, just like partisans, are not happy to hear that their own party is compromising. In American politics, compromise means the other party compromises. And independents fall into that trap just as frequently as partisans do. So compromising is not what's going to win independents over. I think what might help would be simply engaging in more civil debate. Fewer personal attacks, fewer negative ads. I think these are the things that are stigmatizing partisanship and that are ultimately driving independents away. 
Samara Klar is an assistant professor of political science at the University of Arizona and co-author of Independent Politics, How American Disdain for Parties Leads to Political Inaction. You know, if independent voters are waiting for this election to get cleaner and friendlier, it's probably not going to happen. I The idea that elections were ever clean and friendly is one of the best myths that America has ever told itself. Like if you look back into the 1800s and uh, the sort of like smear campaigns that were going on, uh, Abraham Lincoln's BFF ran a newspaper and used it to promote Republican ideas and slam uh, his opponents. So the idea that, yeah, elections can be pure, that we can be independent from the sort of partisanship hasn't really been a thing since Washington said goodbye. Vote for Bear! I don't like Adams. Well, he's gonna lose. That's just defeatist. And Jefferson? In love with France. Yeah, he's so elitist. I like that Aaron Burr. I can't believe we're here with him. He seems approachable. Like who could grab a beer with him? Okay, so what about these mysterious undecided voters? Those people who have somehow not made a decision between Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton just a month away from the election? For one, there are more of them this year than there were in 2012. Third-party candidates are getting more love this time around, too. Close to 20% of people planning to vote say that they are undecided or will vote for a third party. In 2012, that number was just 5 to 10% of voters. According to polling done by YouGov, Clinton has a slight edge over Trump in this group. But most of them don't like either candidate, even a little. We wanted to get a better understanding of how undecided voters are weighing their choices this time around and what they'll be looking for during the last month of the election. So to find out, we partnered up with the Decode DC podcast. It's a show about Washington politics for people outside the Beltway, which you should definitely check out. Their team has been following a small group of undecided voters over the last few weeks, checking in to see what's pulling them in one direction or the other. Joining me to talk about what they're learning is Decode DC host Jimmy Williams. Hello. Hey, how are you, Meg? I'm great. So you found a group of undecided voters. Yeah, yeah, we we found some of these people. I, I, I honestly, Meg, I'm not really sure they're still actually undecided. I think they they really know. I just think they're 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 just screwing with us. I'm joking, <laughs> of course. So these people who claim that they are undecided, they're definitely going to vote, and they care a lot about what they do with their vote. Oh yeah, yeah, big time. Why do they say they have not made up their minds yet? Well, lots of reasons. First, they're all turned off by everything. Secondly, they're all turned off by the candidates. And thirdly, they these are these people are all high, they're completely informed. They know what's going on. I mean, like I think they all sit around and just sit on Twitter all day long. I'm not joking. Um, and and they are completely and totally engaged. One of them is this woman named Deb Morrison. She's 56. She calls herself an old broad, although I completely don't agree with her on that. <laughs> She's from Indiana. She's a Republican. She's considering Trump or Johnson. Um, I think she voted for Trump in the primary, but she also voted for Barack Obama in 2008. What? And if you're ready for this throwback Thursday, she voted for Ross Perot in 1992. And this is what she says when you ask her about today or the current field. She groans. I mean, that's bad. Listen to more of what she listen to what she actually has to say. I would love to see a woman 
um, obviously, um, have that bent. I, like I said, I'm really tired of the good old boy system. Um, I, but, you know, the change and somebody new, somebody who's not a politician would be Trump, but he scares me as far as some of his rhetoric. Uh, I question whether or not he's going to be able to um, represent us with dignity and class. Some of the things that comes out of his mouth, I, I'm appalled. <laughs> I mean, I understand having a strong stance. I do like, and I, I was heading in that direction for Trump. I do, um, I waver with him. Basically, you have someone who's on the fence about Donald Trump, even though she is appalled by most of what he's saying and scared to death of some of the shit that he may do. Think about that for a minute. I mean, that's crazy. I think sometimes when you think about these key voting groups, it's easy to imagine them as being like drunk with power, waiting for candidates to lay these policy proposals at their feet that are going to make them vote for them. But Mm -hmm. these are not issues that are going to be resolved before the election. No. Like she's just going to have to make up her mind about which of these things is more important to her. There's another woman. Now, this lady's from Colorado. She's also 56. Her name is Margaret DeLuca. And she... No, no surprise here, being from Colorado, cares about the environment. She also gives a damn about immigration. She's a Democrat, and she's considering Clinton or Johnson, Gary Johnson, and she did, of course, vote for Obama in 08 and 2012. Listen to what she has to say. <laughs> that's, that's what's lacking is there's no excitement, at least with Obama. Uh, there was a certain vibrancy that's lacking this time, um, uh, I guess two things. I guess if Trump weren't so immature um, and Hillary seems maybe a little wishy-washy on stuff. So I guess to sway my vote either way, it would take those two factors for Trump to mature and and for Hillary maybe to have more of a backbone. Okay, Meg, can I ask you a question? Yeah. Do you think Donald Trump's going to mature between now and <laughs> you don't have to answer that. I'll let you not answer that question if you don't want to. But what was what was more telling about Margaret DeLuca in that one for me was that she's not excited about Hillary Clinton. She was totally pumped about Barack Obama in 08 and, and 2012. She's not excited about Hillary Clinton. She's just not. She's considering a guy named Gary Johnson who doesn't know where the hell Aleppo is, or at least sometimes doesn't know where Aleppo is. That's very telling right there. And she's she's a registered Democrat. There's another woman, also a Republican, uh, and her name is Emily Wirf. She's 38 years old. She is a Republican who's actually considering, ready for this, Hillary Clinton or Gary Johnson. And just so you know who she, what her past is, she voted for Marco Rubio in the primary. And in 2008, she voted for John McCain. And in 2012, she voted for Mitt Romney. And this time, she's considering Clinton or Gary Johnson, which is the third-party candidate. I really don't know if voting for a third-party candidate would even be valuable because usually, you know, they say it just washes out the top two candidates and really doesn't do any good to get the third party elected. So I don't even know if I would vote for a third-party person because then I feel like my vote doesn't count. So I'm in the middle. (laughs) 
And just to give Emily her due worth, um, she has a cold, and when she when she taped that, so I mean, Emily, we hope you're better. If not, go see a doctor um, and and talk to your doctor about who you should vote for. But she's she's genuinely on the fence as a Republican, but she's not going to vote for Trump. I think one thing about these third this third party vote decision among undecided voters that I think is interesting is that. It's not just a decision about like who you're going to vote for, but about what your vote means, whether yeah. you're casting it as a protest vote or you are trying to. Yeah. If you're if you're trying to make a point or if you're trying to elect the president. And a lot of people think that their votes don't count, which blows my mind, considering we live in America where in a lot of countries where you can't even vote if you're for lots of reasons. So I don't know. I think this idea of wasting your vote is is. I mean, I can see both sides point on that, but at least show up and vote for God's sakes. If you don't vote, then I think you're just a lazy, dirty rat bastard. So these people who you're following are super engaged voters. They're following yeah. the election really closely. Big time. Yeah. What are they going to be watching for? What are the factors that are pulling them one way or the other as they make all their micro decisions leading up to the big decision when they vote in November? You know, it's interesting. I've always said that politics is personal. So when you walk into the voting booth and you pull the curtain back, you vote your own personal. Like if you, most women will vote. Okay, are you for women's rights? Gay people, are you anti-gay? I'm voting against you. If you're African American and you're good on civil rights, I'm going to vote for you. So it's all very personal. Politics, the the the, the politics of voting is beyond personal. Like, and, and honestly, I think about when I go in. The first thing that I'm going to vote for, are you for me or against me as a gay man? If you're against me, you don't get my vote. The second thing is, are you going to screw over the country when it comes to my nephew and my niece who are 19 and 21? Because they're going to inherit all this bullshit and all this debt and stuff. And it's not their fault. They didn't run this up. And why should they inherit it? And what are you going to do about it? And you know what? That that's that's a deciding factor for me. Now, maybe I'm an outlier, but I think most people think about themselves and their families. And then that's when they pull the trigger and, 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 and pull the voting lever. Jimmy Williams hosts the Decode DC podcast. Jimmy, thanks for giving us this peek into how undecided voters are weighing their choices right now. Meg Kramer, thank you so much. I enjoyed it. I want to introduce you to someone. His name is Mitch Stewart. Everybody who's knocked on doors for a candidate or, you know, knocked on uh, hundreds of doors has a story about somebody answering the door in their underwear. Mitch founded a political consulting firm called 270 Strategies that specializes in grassroots campaigning. It's an approach to political organizing that sometimes leads to intimate moments with strangers. Male or female, it doesn't matter. It's like you, you always get someone who's like half-dressed, uh, who's just woken up, and you're, you feel terrible and, and sort of awkward. Why would you answer the door <laughs> well, if you haven't put your clothes that, on yet? That's, that's what we all ask ourselves after we finish the campus shift. We're like, why did that person even answer the door? Back in 2012, Mitch Stewart was the battleground states director for President Obama's campaign. His job was to help the campaign win in places like Ohio and Virginia, places where nudging the vote just a few points in either direction could decide who won the state. I wanted to talk to him about how undecided voters fit into that strategy, that strategy in battleground states, because these are places where a small group of people can make a big difference. Mitch told me that there are basically three ways to squeeze out a win. You can do that by expanding your base, and so that's basically voter registration. The second way you can do that is through turnout, like how do you maximize your current list of supporters? And then the third way is through persuading undecideds. And each state had its own unique mixture within those three buckets. Looking at this from a resources perspective, 
How much more or less expensive is it to reach an undecided voter than to do one of the other two buckets that you've got? It's a lot more expensive. (laughs) So in a place like Nevada in 2012, about four to six percent of the electorate was undecided. And so that means that 48 percent, you know, are with you. And so at that point, it's just like either getting them to register or doing whatever you can to get them to vote. Uh, but you know who they are. The four to six percent in a lot of these states are really tough to identify. And so not only do you spend a lot of money finding them, uh, but once you find them, then you spend a lot of money uh, getting them to to make up their mind. Um, and so they're way more expensive Um from a resource perspective. But what's really interesting is that if you're able to change somebody's mind, it's really a twofer, right? Because you're taking one vote away from your opponent and adding a vote for your candidate. So it's more expensive, but there's a bigger payoff if you're successful. So at this stage in the election, like let's say you have a big pot of money, how much of it are you directing at undecided voters over the next five weeks or so? Well, it depends by state, which is another cool factor in this, because in some states, people are voting right now. And so if you're doing persuasion right now, you need to focus on the people who have requested absentee ballots. And for the folks who have requested an absentee ballot and they've identified as being undecided, they are getting bombarded right now with direct <laughs> mail and phone calls and door knocks trying to get them to, you know, to, to change their mind or make up their mind before they cast that ballot. How do you do that? How do you convince someone to change their mind and vote for you? I mean, like people, people, especially people who are undecided, who are independent voters, like they don't like to believe that they can be influenced by political messaging. But like your entire career is based on the idea that they can. So how do you do that? What we did find is the most impactful way to get someone to either make up their mind or, or, or change their mind, you know, to, to persuade an undecided was by having somebody that they had a pre-existing relationship with. So a friend talking to a friend, a neighbor talking to a neighbor. Um, it, was, it was more impactful than a TV commercial. It had a greater impact than a direct mail piece. Basically, any other way that you could communicate with them, the most, the most important uh, uh, way was for uh, somebody to knock on their door to have a conversation over the phone. You know, um, earlier in this episode, we talked with a, a researcher who looks at independent voter identity, uh, Samara Klar. And she pointed out something about this election that I think is really interesting like relate, and relates to this point, which is that both candidates have historically high unfavorability ratings, historically low approval ratings. And it seems like that really gets in the way of this kind of outreach, this kind of voter outreach to undecided voters, because pe- there's not a lot of people who are excited to say that they're voting for you know, Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump. Yeah, I mean, you know, there's a couple different ways that you can persuade somebody. Um, You hope you do it in the aspirational way, right, which is look how great my candidate is or look how great their positions are. But there's another way that you can persuade somebody, which is to disqualify your opponent. And um, people may not like it, but it does work. Do you think that undecided voters are key to Clinton and Trump's campaign strategies this year? Do you think that they are central to their campaign strategies? Yeah, I do. Just because, I mean, if you look at the polling right now, and I think it gets to uh, what your guest said earlier, which is that um, because of the relative high unfavorabilities that both candidates have, you're not getting the same level of uh, positive uh, responses to these surveys. So, you know, the question is, do, do the people who say they're voting for Gary Johnson right now actually stick with them? Uh, the people who are undecided right now, are they truly undecided? You know, there's a big chunk 
um, you know, probably 20 to 25 percent of the electorate right now that isn't with one of those two candidates, which is somewhat of an anomaly. And um, so I think probably this year, more than 2008 or 12, those undecided voters really are going to have an outsized impact. Can you point to any specific messaging that you have seen in either campaign that like jumps out to you as something that's targeting undecided voters? Well, I can speak to what we did in 2012 because we really tested this. And irrespective of gender, race, or age, uh, the message that moved people the most was the economic message. I'm glad we tested it because I'm sure we would have gone down and had like 15 different messages for 15 different subgroups. And we didn't have to do that because we did the test and we found out that one one paragraph was the most persuasive. And so we repeated that over and over and over and over again. And now, so I don't know for sure what Clinton uh, is doing um, or what that message is, but I'm sure they're following a similar process where they're testing all kinds of different messages to figure out what's the most impactful. Mitch Stewart is a founding partner at 270 Strategies. I mean, ultimately, it sounds like it makes a lot of sense for campaigns to be focusing on this group because, you know, especially in those states where a few percentage points could mean the difference between winning and losing, you know, winning over more than half of undecided voters could do that for you. Right. And you see the campaigns trying to reach out to these people who are worried about their jobs, worried about companies going overseas. That's a big part of Trump's messaging you that we see from him talking about China and Mexico and trying to play off of these fears that people have about the economy. Whereas the Clinton campaign is usually a bit more of a positive message about how we're going to grow the American economy. And those are things that the campaigns feel can actually win them the undecideds one way or another. Yeah. And it's so interesting that this messaging reaches across all demographic groups as, you know, the most important issue that people are thinking about. And I think both candidates are presenting a ver- very different ideas about the economy, about what's going to um, improve the economy and about what their approaches to economic policy will be. I agree. I mean, if this were a normal election year, this would be far and away the thing that we'd be talking about as the candidates move to the home stretch. But it's not a typical year. So even though in a recent NBC SurveyMonkey poll, uh, I believe it was uh, 33% of the respondents said that the economy and jobs was their top priority, far and away uh, the top uh, issue that people were surveyed about. Uh, we see that there's so many other things going on with this campaign that it's hard to uh, have the focus just be on jobs in the economy. So here's what we do know. We know that there are still some people who have not decided who they're going to vote for yet. Incredible, though that may be. We know that independent voters make up a much larger percentage of overall voters than they ever have before. And we know that Clinton and Trump are both looking to undecided voters as people who might help them squeeze out a win in some of these key states. Do we still think it's crazy that people are undecided? Unequivocally, yes. (laughs) I still think that's just bizarre. Like, guys... It's been this is such a long campaign season, guys. We've been at this for like over a year and a half. Where were you? What what was more pressing to you than who's running this country? 
I, I go back to the I go back to the the Seven Eleven poll, the coffee cup poll. You know, I think that maybe it's not that people don't know who they want to vote for, but that they just really don't like the options that they have, and they just don't want to decide. Well, to to quote famed statesman Aaron Burr, hold your nose and close your eyes, and just do this, guys. <laughs> Copyright Lin Manuel Miranda. <laughs> Hayes, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. No One Knows Anything is produced by me, Meg Kramer, with editorial oversight from Kate Nacera and Eleanor Kagan, and production help from Julia Furlan. Our music is composed by Beauty Pill. You can subscribe to No One Knows Anything on iTunes to follow our coverage through the election. You can email us, we're no one knows anything at buzzfeed.com, or find us on Twitter, we're at no one knows. Thanks so much to Jimmy Williams and our friends on the Decode DC team. If you haven't checked out their podcast yet, you definitely should. And that's all for now. We'll be back soon with more things we don't know. 